0: Yeah, it's really interesting, right? I've actually, uh, as part of what we do at Dashdot, we organise portfolio health checks for for all of our clients, and as part of that, we do get valuations. So we do get some full valuations. So I've actually read some of these uh, uh, cap rate valuations that have come through just to understand the rationale. And the rationale from from the valuer's perspective is that it is perceived as an investor investor asset, and that's how they and they as a result they use that as the best way to derive a value of that property.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dashboard Inside of the Home for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if you want to know how to make more money, capital, cash flow, build your property portfolio faster, have more fun, and live a life of freedom, choice, and abundance, then this is a great episode for you. We talk in this episode about how valuations can be used to solve both capital and cash flow constraints. And boy, oh boy, there is some great hacks in here. Not only do we talk about refinancing and how we can you know, better do that and the benefits of that, we actually talk about how you can use refinancing to increase your cash flow specifically on the basis of valuations and the way that you can get those done. We talk about the different types of valuations, when they apply, how you can use them. This is a hackathon when it comes to how you can use valuations as a strategic tool in your portfolio to get more juice at your portfolio so you can get to everywhere you want to get to in life much, much faster. My guest today is Jason DeSilva. If you haven't seen him on the, on the podcast before, go check out all of his previous episodes. They are all great. But before we get stuck into it, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're on and share this with somebody. Share this with somebody who is a property investor who may or who maybe wants to be a property investor that you think is going to benefit from learning valuation stuff that's got to help them to accelerate their portfolio. It's super useful stuff. I'd love it if you could help us get the word out. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to Dash. Insider. Joining me today is Jason DeSilva, the head, the top dog of client success at Dash.Dot. Jason, how are you? i going well, Chris. How are you? Very well, thanks. I always really enjoy doing podcasts with you because we always cover really interesting stuff, and that's mostly because you're like a complete freaky nerd when it comes to property shit.
0: Is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. So a lot of what I've seen is a lot of general property concepts, but working with our clients, we've been able to come up with some really creative and I've never heard things like these being discussed before. So I'm really excited to yeah share some of the things that we're working on in the background. Yeah, totally. Last time you were on, we covered like uh, different ways to increase cash flow in the portfolio. And I know for
1: a fact that that helped heaps of people. And if you haven't uh, listened to that episode, by the way, um, just go back and check it out. And we might link it in the show notes as well. But I know heaps of people who actually took those strategies that you talked about in that podcast, applied it, and then maximized heaps of cash flow in their portfolios. So I'm really excited to see what we're going to dig into today. Because the topic of today's discussion is how clients can use or how people, how investors can use valuations to solve both capital and cash flow constraints, which is a really interesting concept because most people don't think about valuations as something they can use as a tool. They might think about valuations as something that happened maybe as part of the purchasing process, you know, when there's a when they apply for finance as a valuation not on the property, maybe as part of the selling process. Um, or, you know, potentially as a refinance type thing, but usually just as a mechanism to to kind of like get some kind of cash out of the property, as opposed to thinking about it as specifically as a strategic tool that can be used in a portfolio. So, I really want to get into this, but why don't we start with like, what are the kind of different types of valuations?
0: Yeah, for sure. So, with the properties that we buy, we see two main types of valuations. So, we see desktops or AVM valuations, and those are usually automatically generated valuations uh, each bank, each of the major banks has their own uh, valuation tool that they use to generate these valuations. They usually pull from data sources like CoreLogic and, and PropTrack uh, and essentially it derives an instant value of the property based on that data. So usually it's comparable sales data over three to six months and based on what that tool has available, it will essentially produce an automatic value of that property. Yes, so that they are sometimes really advantageous but often
1: really incorrect. What's your experience with AVMs?
0: For AVMs, what I've noticed with a lot of our clients is there's, they're really helpful when it's a very common property type and there's lots of comparable sales. But if the property's a little bit obscure or if it's in an area where there isn't um, a lot of comparable sales the the valuations can come back really wacko, like sometimes really high and, and sometimes really low. So it's really important. Like one, one example is duplexes, duplexes on one title. Usually when we get desktop valuations for properties like that, uh, they do come back really funny. But if you've got a standalone house that's in an area that has lots of comparable sales, um, they can usually be pretty accurate and a, a pretty good indicator of what a property's worth.
1: Yeah. One of the biggest issues, though, with um, desktop valuations is that they're, uh, they're a lagging indicator because they use, they use uh, historical 90 days worth of data. So when the market is going up, they tend to undervalue properties. That t- tends to kind of be the broadly the experience you know personally I I had an experience with this uh myself um I think you remember we were buying a property in um in New South Wales and uh and you know we were dead set clear on the valuation and the but that wasn't a value that was actually wasn't an AVM. that was a that was, a, it was actually, that was a, was a full valve that was a full valve okay let's talk about let's talk about let's talk about full valves because we've covered desktops ABMs, what's a full val?
0: Yeah, full valves are really interesting, right? So these are the most common valves that people would see when they're buying a property. So this is when the bank essentially instructs a, a qualified valuation firm uh, to attend the property, complete an inspection, and produce a valuation report based on uh, what they feel the most comparable and uh, advantageous way is to value that specific property. So those can usually take a few days uh, because the bank then has to organize for the valuer to liaise with the property manager or the sales agent, inspect the properties. If there's a property tenanted, they have to liaise with tenants. They'll go and complete a full inspection of the property and from there produce a valuation report on what where they see value. Usually they use they use two different types of valuation methods when they do that from what we've seen. Uh, they use a comparable approach where they'll look at similar properties in the area that have sold recently and discount them based on the attributes to make sure they're similar to the the subject property that's being valued. Uh, we also see uh, val- properties valued on cap rates, which is really interesting. This is more so for our multi-dwelling properties. Um, I can go into a little bit about that, but do you want know, to? Is there anything specific you want me to cover on the full valves before that? Yeah,
1: no. Well, I guess the, the full valve just at least ties back to the story. So it's really interesting. So on the one hand, you've got um, you've got desktop valves, which are fundamentally driven by algorithms. So that's really the fundamental driver, right? It's just a system. The system, you know, automatically looks up, you know, sales and whatever, and. Comes up with a number and says, "Hey, this is what we think the valuation is." Bang, right? So it's quick, but not necessarily accurate. Then you've got full valuations, which a certified or a you know a practicing valuer will actually go out. Theoretically, I say theoretically, and if anyone wants to hear me poke fun at uh, valuers, just just look at um, look up a previous episode I did with Ashwin Sinan, who is actually now on the team. Hilariously enough. Um, <laughs> But like uh, these valuers are supposed to go to a property and supposed to conduct a full valuation of the property. And, and so you're supposed to end up with like a really accurate uh, measure. My experience, I'd love to know your take on this as well, is that, I don't know, like a, a reasonably high percentage of the time, it does not appear that valuers actually go to the properties to do a full valuation or at best may do a drive-by um, and go, okay, that looks like the house, blah, 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 tick a few boxes and and off we go and the example that i've got of that happening is the the property we bought in new south wales where the valuation came back 30 grand under uh what we believed market value was and also what we agreed the contract price was and then we challenged it and it came back like 30 grand less than that again uh which was completely ridiculous so then we 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 challenged it again (laughs) and provided a lot of supporting evidence to which the valuer came back and then gave it uh valuation of the of the of the contract price it just goes to show that there's obviously some systemic values in yeah, there. But what's your experience with full valves?
0: What I've noticed with uh, full VALs is, and this is with valuations in general, is that they're an art, not a science. Usually, like what we've seen when we get valuations ordered, and I've got some examples here as well, where we'll order four different valuations from four different valuers on the same property, and all four of those valuations will have a different result. <laughs> it's quite rare, uh, actually, that the value that the values would come back exactly the same. So largely depends on how that valuer individually perceives that property and what comparables they use to derive its value. And that's traditionally quite different from other valuers. It's quite rare that we'll see valuers value the same property um, at the exact same price, <laughs> which is quite interesting. So we've got some, Uh, examples around that and some strategies around that, that can actually work in in clients, like in uh, the listeners' favours, actually. We'll
1: come back to the strategies and the examples because I want to dig into that. But before we do, we mentioned cap rates, cap rate valuations. What's a cap rate valuation?
0: So cap rate valuation is essentially valuing the property based off its gross rent. Uh, And this is usually our commercial properties get valued based on gross or net rent. But for residential, we usually see properties getting valued uh, on the gross rent, usually for multi-dwelling properties, these could be duplexes, triplexes, unit blocks, because these are generally perceived to be investor uh, investor-grade assets. And investors are rational, and they purchase properties based on looking at the numbers and deriving a, a rational a uh, yield of what of what they're looking to achieve from a return perspective. So, a cap rate will look at what is the general yield for that market, and then looking at the the income that the property is producing to derive a value based on on that ba- on that basis.
1: Think that's actually the rationale? Like oh duplex is a more investor stock, therefore we'll use a cap rate valuation. That doesn't seem do you think that's genuinely the, the reason?
0: Or do you it's think a it's a good, it's it's a good I, question?
1: Yeah. Or do you think it's actually more yeah, or do you think it's actually more tied to the fact that um, you know, there's multiple income streams, maybe there's yeah, yeah, it's interesting to consider when you think about like, you know, a duplex can be valued using a cap rate method. But also, a shopping center would almost certainly be valued using a cap rate method. Um, but a duplex probably more 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 than likely would use a cap rate method, but not necessarily. And so, there's a bit of a bridge between those two. Because you can look at like, okay, if you've got a four-pack um, unit block or like a 10-pack unit block, you can kind of go, okay, it's sort of like borderline commercial asset. You can kind of understand that a little bit. Yep. You can go, okay, commercial. But when it's a duplex, I mean, that's just... That that seems to be on the on the stretchy end of it. So, what's your what's your thinking around that?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, right? I've actually, uh, as part of what we do at Dash we organise portfolio health checks for for all of our clients, and uh, as part of that, we do get valuations and we do get some full valuations. So, I've actually read some of these uh, uh, cap rate valuations that have come through just to understand the rationale. Uh, the rationale from from the valuer's perspective is that it is perceived as an investor investor asset and that's how they and they as a result they use that as the best way to derive a value of that property we have also seen uh some of these duplexes getting valued on comparables uh as well but and this is quite interesting when the cap rate is used usually the valuation amount is higher interesting yeah
1: yeah interesting is that is that because broadly speaking on a duplex you're sort of getting um, apartment rents, but house rates. In effect, in effect, right? So, and apartments typically have a higher yield per per unit, and you've got effectively two apartments basically stuck together uh, in a in a house kind of general formation. So you've sort of got a higher. That's kind of effectively it. And so, on that basis, because you're effectively got an apartment yield,
0: you're valuing it on the yield versus what the equivalent would be if you just knocked out the middle wall and had it as a house. A hundred percent. And there's also like ways that people can influence the rents on these types of properties as well so if they're making sure the rent is in line with market value they will they will perceive a higher valuation as well when that property does get valued if the if the cap rate is used and i've done this in my own in my own portfolio and some of our some of our clients have done this as well and it's been really interesting
1: yeah okay cool let's talk about how we could use these valuations to our advantage because there's so many cool things we I, I nearly speared into like how people could use rents to then crank up valuations and stuff but i know you got a few examples where do you want to start
0: yeah, so I've had to think about how, how the listeners can strategically use these valuations. To over- Obviously, we've spoken about this previously. There's a few different constraints that uh, people have when growing out their portfolio. Usually, it's capital, uh, borrowing capacity, or cash flow. Uh, valuations can be a really good tool for helping to overcome capital and uh, cash flow constraints, as well, strangely enough, which we'll go through a little bit later. But in terms of overcoming capital constraints, one of the, one of the tips that I have in here is uh, using a broker over a banker. And, and we've spoken about this a few times but it's quite advantageous specifically from a valuation perspective because brokers have access to usually 30, 40 we have one broker that has access to 150 lenders they can order valuations through multiple different lenders and as we spoke about previously value is an art, not a science so usually the valuation results can differ quite significantly and that difference can actually be quite advantageous in terms of being able to have enough equity to roll that uh, property uh, into the next property or not? So, like as an example, we've we've got an example here, of a property that we recently bought in Townsville. Uh, we had that valued four different times, and the discrepancy between the lowest valuation and the highest valuation is about sixty five thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's on a that's on a property that's that's we're talking four hundred
1: and thirty thousand to four hundred ninety five thousand, right? So, if it's sixty five thousand dollars on a six and a half million dollar property, it might not be, you know, you know that'd be a you know whatever. N- not, not, not worth noting. But that's a very interesting. Like that's that's big. You know, that's over what's huge. That, what's that percentage? That's you know, that's a that's chunky. Anyway, a lot over ten percent. And so, why can I ask? Why did we get four valuations?
0: So, what we did for for this client, a lot of our brokers do this as well, is that we will order proactively order multiple valuations with suitable lenders. And the reason for that is so we can determine what is the maximum amount of equity we can take out from that property to roll forward into the next one. So just to clarify,
1: it's before approaching a lender, right? So it's preparing to work out which lender to work with. So for example, you know, you can go and get a, these are desktop valuations.
0: Is that correct? Yeah. These are full valuations. (laughs) Actually. okay, Yeah. So So basically
1: in this, in this context, you know, a number of uh, different entities, Macquarie, CBA, et cetera where we went and said, hey, let's get a full valuation done and let's see who thinks this is worth the most, then we can go with them as the preferred lender because the constraint that we're
0: trying to solve for is capital. That's a fair statement? Correct. Yeah, correct. So being able to, before before doing this, it would be good to check with your broker what lenders would suit your scenario so you're not just ordering valuations that you can't actually act on. So checking that first and then ordering val- multiple valuations with those lenders and essentially taking the highest value to realize the highest capital amount.
1: Yeah, and you know what's really interesting about this? Like um, desktops, desktop valuations have, uh, like a lot of the time they they can come back higher, right? And so people can kind of sometimes get this impression that the desktops are just overinflated, but in this example here, there was one uh, bank that provided a desktop and a full valve, and the desktop was four thirty nine, and the full was four hundred and seventy. So in this case, the full, the full valuation was actually significantly better than the desktop valuation. What type of property
0: was this? Was this a single family home or is this a multi? This is a multi. So this is a duplex. Uh, so we've had multiple different valuations. And like even with getting multiple full valuations, it's also good to get multiple desktop valuations as well, just so you have all the cards on the table. And from there, you can work with your broker to figure out what's going to be the most advantageous to, to move forward. Yeah, nice. And... I don't want to uh, oversimplify things a little bit too much but why is that
1: important? Like why is it important for people to be able to access more capital sooner? What is that going to do?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. So with, with doing these multiple valuations, it's usually to assess how much equity we can take out to roll forward. And the higher equity amount we can access, it leads into a higher purchase price with the next property. And that will, as a result, with the compounding benefits of property, lead to higher value of compound growth, which will eventually build a client's portfolio quicker. And again, they can just replicate, rinse and repeat that strategy as they go uh, forward as well.
1: Yeah, it's not necessarily more expensive properties. It's also just more properties. Because for example, like, you know, in this example here, the difference between the lowest valuation and the highest valuation was $65,000. $65,000 is starting to get pretty close to how much money you'd need to go and buy another house, right? So the difference between those two valuations is, you know, almost enough to cover a deposit stamp, depending on the price of the property and all that kind of stuff. It's almost enough to buy another house. So there's like a whole nother house. Think about it like that. The difference between the highest and lowest valuations is another house. So that's a very interesting way to think about it. And you know, a lot of a lot of property investors do get stuck because they don't have right clear optics on what they're trying to achieve and all of that kind of stuff. And this actually is really, really interesting because um, many, many of the people listening would, would know that we've built some technology uh, around portfolio planning. You and I actually did an episode on our portfolio planning software, the portfolio growth plans. And what's really interesting about this is um, understanding how you can move capital more quickly. You can actually start to see a rapid impact on what happens to the rest of the portfolio. And just these really small moves, like one simple move like that, you go, oh, great. It's one extra house. But it might not just be one extra house. That could actually be like three or four or five years less time to get to your goal because of the way things compound over time. So not only is the difference between the highest and lowest valuation one house, the difference between the highest and lowest valuation could be something like, you know, five years shaved off the amount of time it's going to take you to get your goal. Which is the kind of optics you're only going to get if you've got a portfolio growth plan. By the way, which is not something that everyone can do. But if you do want to get one, um, you know, you can reach out to the team and we can we can um, have a chat about getting you one as well. Because it's a really powerful tool, so you can see how these things collapse over time and really start to make a big
0: shift. So I think this is a really, 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 really important one. Any any other points you want to make on this? yeah the I just wanted to reiterate something that you said and Andy mentioned this on the podcast that you recorded with him as well like with with what we're trying to achieve with clients essentially want what we want to do is accumulate as many properties as we can as quickly as we can and this can be a really good strategy to help clients be being able to achieve that that Cadence and that momentum to be able to grow out their portfolio quicker and then as you've mentioned as well uh being able to shave off significant amount of time from getting to their target either cash flow or equity goal as well yeah love it love it okay what's next Jason the next thing that I wanted to go through, which is quite interesting, I don't think a lot of people talk about this, is uh, how valuations can be used to help cash flow, uh, manage cash flow in your portfolio as well. This is for, th- for those of you playing at home, we've got a little
1: uh, Google Doc. We've got some notes prepared for this podcast. And Jason's put in this example, and just before I was getting ready for this podcast, and I looked at this example that Jason's put there, and I'm like, man, this is so sick. I'm really glad that we're talking about this. Talk, Talk to me about how valuations can improve cash flow. This is like this is ni- this is Jedi Ninja shit, by the way. It's
0: cool, isn't it? Oh, it's really cool, and I've and I've been using um using my my portfolio as I guess like as a bit of a test case, and then obviously implementing my learnings with the podcast and also uh, supporting our clients as well. So valuations can actually be used to improve cash flow on your portfolio. Uh, and it can be done through a few ways, right? So when you get when you get a loan with a bank, most of our clients, w- within reason, we ask, like w- obviously depends on their circumstance. We try and maximize uh, using the bank's money as as much as we can. And when they buy their property, they buy it at a specific LVR. So that could be 80%, 88% LVR, and they get loan terms on that basis. Uh, and a lot of people think when using valuations and obviously refining and taking out equity that that is, that is a driver. And that is probably the main driver that we see with a lot of our clients, uh, but- Valuations can also be used to to help manage cash flow in your portfolio, which is quite interesting uh, given the current interest rate environment. And uh, so one of the examples that I have in here uh, is just in my my own portfolio. So I bought two properties uh, about two years ago, uh, and they were purchased at a 91% LVR. So the interest rate at the time was 3.69%, which was pretty high given the current interest rates at that time. But now uh, in the last two years, with all the rate rises we've had, that interest rate is sitting at 7.66%. Uh, And because the LVR is so high, that is indicative of the interest rate as well because traditionally that carries high risk. And as a result, the banks want to carry, have more uh, security and more capital and benefit to them in in doing that. So what I was able to do with these properties is I ordered valuations about two months ago and there was actually enough equity in both properties to refinance, not take out any equity, just de-risk that portfolio. So that property has now gone from a 91% LVR to an 80% LVR, which means there's less risk to the bank. And as a result, they offer uh, more favorable lending terms. So the previous loan that I had was 7.66%, pretty high, uh, even for the current environment. And we were able to bring that uh, interest rate down to 6.14%, which for that specific property is uh, a $5,000 per year improvement in the cash flow of that property, which is significant. That's a significant difference. And that could be put into an offset account to get interest. It could be put towards another investment property. could be put towards renovations. You just get more control. Uh, so I did that over two properties. Talk about the second property you
1: said, but that double benefit that you just mentioned there, the offset, is really, really interesting. Because it's not just like, oh, I have $5,000 a year more in my back pocket. It's like, no, you're getting $5,000 a year back that you can put in offset, which then it offsets the actual cost of debt. So you're actually saving more than $5,000 a year It'll be 5000 Plus the amount that you're saving on having less uh, nominal debt based on your offset. So, talk about the second property.
0: Yeah. So the second property, I did a similar thing. So I was able to bring that down to eighty percent as well, and improvement in cash flow for that. So I dropped the interest rate down from seven point six to six point seven nine, and a four thousand dollar per year improvement in cash flow. So just from doing that, was able to create an additional nine thousand dollars per year of additional cash flow in the portfolio. Dude, that's awesome.
1: The the reason that's awesome is because most people think about refinances as a way to take money out, not necessarily, uh, or maybe just to, you know, change their, change lender, maybe get a better rate or whatever. But you specifically refinanced to change your LVR, which then gave you the advantageous position, which I think is really a unique approach um, that a lot of people could think about because, you know, in the context of like, maybe there's an extra 10% you know, if you can find the right lender with the right valuation, you might be able to get a 10% higher valuation. And that could, as you've kind of put it out, take you from something like a 91% LVR to an 80% LVR, which is going to give you a significant difference in risk profile with the bank, which is going to reduce. It's awesome. Like, I think this is really, really good. Cool. Yeah. I think it's a really Yeah, tough it's
0: really plan. interesting. Yeah. And you can do it two ways. You can do it with the existing lender uh, if you want to make things a little bit easier. But obviously, there are some benefits in going to external lenders as well. So, Uh, Once again, same approach, get as many valuations as you can so you understand the equity position. And based on that, you can get favorable lending terms. And it might mean bringing the LVR down from 88% to 80% or even 70%. The lower that you go down, the less risk it is to the bank. You're not giving them any extra cash. It's just the position of that property has actually changed now uh, because it's grown in value and then you get a substantial benefit in having a, a lower interest rate as a result as well.
1: Yeah. No, dude, I love that. I love that. I also want to talk about like, you know, refinancing to take the capital out because I know we sort of just touched on that. We were talking about the uh, the, the comparison in the lending, and you know, maybe that's a whole property's deposit. But I don't think it, I don't think enough people really think about the benefit associated with refinancing equity out of a property. And again, this comes down to valuations, right? Because if you get a favourable valuation, you could take a significantly higher amount of equity out of a property. But people think, oh, that's cool, like. Maybe I can refinance to get $100,000 out of the property. They think about the $100,000 and they go, great, a free $100,000. But there's actually a little bit more depth to it than that, which I think is worth us talking about. So with your permission, I'll I'll have a little bit of an opportunity to have a soliloquy here because let's just say, for the point of the example, let's say that you're taking $100,000 of equity out of a property. And let's just say, for the point of the example, the interest rate is 5%. Okay, so you've increased your debt by 5%, but you've got $100,000. Now, let's just say, for the point of the example, that $100,000 was all the cash you needed to go buy another house, right? So you went and bought this other property. So you've effectively put none of your own capital in, right? But the cost of the capital that you've used is 5%. Now, assuming you've got an 80 or a 90% LVR on that property that you bought, the likelihood of you getting a return on capital of above 5% is pretty bloody good. You know, like, you know, I think industry averages or kind of standards is roughly a 20% return on capital based on leverage. Our clients, uh, on on average, get 67% in the first year, but that's not normal. So if you're not working with Dashdot, maybe 25% is probably a better measure for you to think about. But even if it's 25% return on capital in the first year, it's like you're spending 5% to get the money and you're making a 25% return on your capital, which is super powerful because you've effectively taken free money and you're making a 20% arbitrage on that capital. Like twenty, You put money in the stock market, you're not going to get 20% return. Right. And this is just like, that's just the arbitrage that you're making on that opportunity, which is pretty wild. And then on that, the cost of the interest, depending on, you know, where, where you've leveraged from and all of that kind of stuff, the cost of the interest is tax deductible. <laughs> right. So, so that's a tax deduction. So, even that 5% of interest, you get to claim, claim that against your tax, not the whole 5%, but a proportionate amount. So that goes down, which then increases your return profile again. So, you might, let's say, be able to uh, write off 2% of that 5%, for example. So then all of a sudden, it's a nominal 3% cost of capital, and all of a sudden, your 20% return has gone up to a 22% return, and then on top of that, you're not even paying for the cost of capital, because you've got tenants that are going to pay for the cost of capital. So, then all, so it's basically an infinite return cycle. Infinite return. Which yeah is bananas, because a lot of people don't think about it like that. They think about, like, I can take money out of here, and I can go plant another tree, rock and roll, and that tree is going to be great. I'm going to enjoy it. But if you actually think about like the financial mechanics of it, it's w- like it's wild, which is specifically why I think real estate's the best asset class for anyone to be invested in. It's great to be diversified or whatever, but I still think that this is a, a significantly um, better way to think about things. And again, that comes down to how well you can think about valuations and how you can apply different valuation methods. So that was my soliloquy. Over to you, Jason. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's awesome, right? Because obviously we have some clients that do contribute consistent cash to their portfolio, but there are some situations where you can just start out with one deposit to buy a property and within time you can use that deposit, essentially take out the capital that you've put in uh, after a certain period of time if you've bought well and just continuously keep rolling that forward uh, without actually contributing any additional cash. And I've done that with one of my properties as well. It's It's absolutely insane. And there's obviously ways to mitigate the cash flow uh as well that we've spoken about and we've spoken about on other podcasts as well i think it's a it's a really good strategy and a lot of people can get a benefit out of it yeah 100% i mean personally i've done it you know personally i've done it because you know we started
1: dash dot we didn't have lots of surplus capital and all that kind of stuff we pretty much built our we pretty much put in seventy thousand dollars at the start of our portfolio and then maybe we've contributed an extra 20 grand or something over the over the last four years and i've got you know a a reasonable portfolio right so it's it's pretty awesome that we need to percent. Like okay anyway what other tips have we got for people to use valuations can we talk about cap rates when can we use that let's talk about multis cap rates what what else
0: yeah for sure so for example, like you'd have to know first of all if you've got a multi-dwelling property uh get some valuations done just to see how the market is assessing assessing those and one thing and one thing that is a is a pretty useful tip actually uh for the listeners when you do get valuations on your properties ask your broker or banker if you can actually have access to the valuation report. Uh, A lot of brokers and bankers don't share that. Uh, Sometimes you can get access to it, but it will really give you a good understanding of how they've derived the valuation of that property. And sometimes you can even call valuers and ask for their opinion on things you can do to increase the value of the property. I've seen a lot of people uh, do this and I've heard a lot of podcasts about people doing this as well. It can be a really good strategy, right? Because they're the ones that are going to be able to They're the ones that are being employed by the bank. They usually work for the bank, not for the borrower to essentially make sure the bank is getting appropriate uh, understanding of the security that they're going to cover. So getting understanding and feedback from them actually on on how the property sits and what you can do uh, is a really good idea. But on the cap rate specifically, what you can do, uh, for example, if say your property is rented out at a certain amount, what you can do is check in with your property manager on on things you can do to increase increase the rent on your properties. And if you're able to do that, and get a valuation based on a cap rate, you could actually increase the value of your property. So I have an example about this for, for one of my properties. So And I'll, I'll go through an example of how a cap, a cap rate. Should we go through an example of how a cap rate actually works? First yes, in, let's do that. In practice. Yeah, because yeah, it can be quite... I know we've thrown a lot of jargon around here. So it's let's not just comment like, the numbers like specifically. I'm not yeah. used to uh, cap
1: rates or how to think about it. So let's go slow and let's dig into it.
0: Yep. So for example, we've got a, a property that we've bought about two years ago. It's a duplex. One dwelling is rented at 340 per week, and the second dwelling is rented at 380 per week. So the total rent for the property is 720 What the valuers will do is they'll get that as a gross rental amount for the entire year. So if that property was fully tenanted for a year, the rental income would be $37,440. And in that area, the market cap, the cap rate, which is the the yield, the average yield for that area is about 8%. So they've said an investor would be looking for approximately about 8% return in that area. And as a result, that property has been valued at $468,000. How, der- 468,
1: How do they derive the cap rate? How do they derive the cap rate in the area?
0: What they would look at is properties that have recently sold in the area and what they're renting for. So they'd look at what ju- similar duplexes have sold for in the area based on that condition as well. So traditionally, if a property is newer, it would have a lower cap rate. If it's not as new, or if it's the, it depends on the condition of the property as well. They'll derive a, a cap rate on that basis, but for this property, the cap rate was about eight percent based on similar properties that had sold in the area, and as a result, they valued the property at four hundred and sixty-eight thousand dollars. Yeah. So, so what's interesting about
1: that is they're looking at, um, you know, comparables to some degree and trying to work out what the average, what the reasonably expected average yield is in that area. So, if the yield is higher, so you you mentioned like newer properties have lower cap rates. What that what that more specifically means is that they'll have a lower yield. Yeah, they'll have a lower yield. And properties that have got a higher yield have a higher cap rate, fair to say. And so there's an arbitrage opportunity there as well where you can try and split the, like you can find properties that are, for example, under-rented. So the yield might be low on that property, but just by renting it differently, you can increase the the nominal cap rate on that property, right?
0: Yeah, that's a very common strategy in commercial property buying properties that are under-rented, getting the rents up, and then getting a significant valuation outcome as a result. So, definitely something uh, a lot of people can take advantage of. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, continue on with your example. So, in this example, you gave like 720 a week,
1: 37,440 for the annual rent, market cap of 8%. How does
0: that 8% translate to a valuation? So essentially what's happened there is the 8% cap rate would be used against the market value. So they would see at 8%, what would the property be worth to get that result? So at the rental income that's been received, how can we get the 8%? And what would the property need to be purchased at to be able to derive that 8%? And in this case, they've put in $468,000. So 468,000 times by 8% will be the, the gross rental amount for that property. Yeah, bingo. So that's what I wanted to get to. If someone wants to do the maths on it, It's as simple as taking
1: the annual rent and then dividing it by the cap rate or depending on how you're doing the maths, right? So if you've got to use a percentage, so if you divide by 8%, then uh, you will get, so 37,440 divided by 8% equals 468,000. Or um, if you do divide it by 0.08, you're also going to get to the same outcome. So 37,440 divided by 0.08, is going to get you to four hundred and sixty-eight thousand. So you do divided by the cap rate. That's going to give you the outcome of the valuation you're looking for. So this is really cool because you can use this on um, commercial properties as well. Like if you see, or if you see a property that's advertised with cap rate, you can be like, hmm, let me do some maths on that. How much how much rent is coming in? What's the cap rate? Bang, that's it. That's what I should expect to pay.
0: Yeah, and you can also see what that property is rented for and get another appraisal to see if it is potentially under rented and if it is, that could be a good opportunity as well.
1: Yeah, love that. Love that. Cool. And so how can people use cap rates to their advantage? We've talked to a kind of about like how to calculate them and stuff, but how can we use that to the to our
0: advantage? So there's a few ways. Uh, what I would suggest is, and we've we've spoken a little bit about this on the, the previous podcast that I did, but if you've got uh, properties that are getting valued on cap rates, have a look and see what the market rent is. And just make sure when you are doing your lease renewals, you're as close to that that market rent as possible. And you can also work with your property manager to see whether there's anything you could do it to that property to increase the, the cap rate, uh, to increase the rent, sorry, and that will result in an increase in the in the cap rate and the evaluation of the property as well. Yeah.
1: It's interesting, right? Because when you think about um, adding value to a property, you, could, uh, you know, kind of think about it different ways. Because if, if it's getting valued based on, you know, typical residential, you know, valuations and stuff, you might choose value adds differently to if the specific outcome was how much can I increase rents not how much can i increase the perceived value that actually change the types of things that you would choose to do to add value to the property which is really really interesting you know because you know fundamentally you could actually end up doing the wrong thing where you could make it look nice but doesn't actually change the rents uh
0: and therefore yeah 100% so yeah i would go from like a, a renovate for equity strategy to a yet renovate for yield so you be trying to do things to to get the rent up as high as possible yeah bingo bingo
1: and so you know, is it possible to kind of drive how lenders might choose this? Like, like could there be a scenario where you're like, no, 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 I want my house valued on a cap rate basis
0: uh, or something like that? Do, do, you, do you think of any situations where that might have happened? It's, it's really interesting, hey, because like in, in some of these areas where we're buying these multi-dwelling properties, there are still some valuers that are valuing them based off comparable sales. Uh, and there are some valuers that are valuing them based on cap rates. So what you can do is... Uh, If you work, another reason to to work with a really good broker, there are some brokers that actually have really good relationships with lenders where they can choose the valuer. It's pretty interesting, right? Uh, I don't think this is quite commonly spoken about. But what you can do is if you've had a valuation from a valuer in the past and they've valued the property uh, based on the cap rate and you want a cap rate valuation again, you can ask the broker if there's scope to assign that same valuer. To the property, and as a result, you'll get a cap rate valuation, and potentially get a more favourable outcome than if that property was just valued uh, on the comparison uh, approach. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. This is so good. So,
1: not only are we unlocking more capital, but we're also uh, also unlocking more cash flow in all of this. Are there any other uh, tips or any other things you want to talk about?
0: I just wanted to share an example, actually, which has uh, been pretty cool. So. Uh, we purchased a property for a cli- uh, client about. So this is a, this client we've purchased two back in before we did this. He'd purchased two properties with us, and essentially he was waiting to to save money to be able to buy the next property. So he was in a, in a savings mode. He was also buying uh, some commercial properties as well. So he was really keen to to purchase with us, uh, but he didn't have the capital to be able to move ahead with the purchase. So we got some valuations for him as part of the portfolio health checks that we were doing, and we bought the property for four hundred and fifty thousand. And in nine months, we had a valuation come back at six hundred and fifty. So forty-four percent, forty-four percent growth, and one hundred and sixty-five point seven percent return on invested capital in nine months. The client was able to essentially, in nine months, yes, in nine months. (laughs) 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 So when I when I called the client to give him the news, he was just absolutely mind blown. And the next thing that we did was essentially go back to the broker, refinance, take that equity out, and he's bought two properties with us since and is now purchasing another one in, in self-managed super fund as well, which is so a really cool result. Awesome. Okay, so nine
1: months went from four fifty to six fifty in nine months. E- epic. So that's two hundred thousand dollar uplift, forty four percent, forty four point four percent growth, hundred and sixty five percent return on invested capital, which is wild. Then uh we refinanced out the equity, or they did, and how long ago was that? Like how long, because uh, when did they do the refi roughly? You don't want you to have it on, on hand, but I'm just curious, Like, because you mentioned they've now bought two more properties and about to buy a third. So I'm very interested to know like nine months to get to the valuation where we took the money out and then how long to get the extra three properties.
0: Yeah, so we took the equity out immediately and then about a few months later, we bought another property and then the client did the same strategy with the first property that he bought, took the equity out of that, To buy the next one so we've bought two properties using essentially two properties have created two more properties using equity same uh, thing that we just spoke about earlier Uh, and now he's using his self-managed super fund to grow and purchase the fifth property so essentially other than buying those first two properties there hasn't been any additional capital contributed from his end he's just used the equity from the first two to buy two more and then we'll likely replicate that Replicate that strategy in another 12, uh, 12 to eighteen months again. So it's been, it's been really interesting. Unreal. And can I just dig into that a little bit more? So
1: when that that was a duplex that was purchased in Bundaberg, was that purchase was that purchased? Was the kind of like seller's valuation based around or like a residential, you know, valuation? And then the quirk is that we've used a cap rate valuation to derive that massively, ma- that massive uplift.
0: Essentially. Yeah. And they've also used really interesting comparables as well. Cause this is a pretty big house that's been converted into two separate units. So it could be valued either way. Uh, and we got a really favorable value. And this is another example. We ordered multiple valuations. This one was the most favorable, the ones, the one secondary to this, I think there was one that was $50,000 lower and there was one that was a hundred thousand dollars lower as well. So if we didn't get those additional valuations, we actually wouldn't know that there was an opportunity to be able to do this. So another good case for, for getting the multiple valves.
1: Hey, let's talk. Let's talk about a different example, which I don't know if you've prepared any notes on. Uh, but let's talk about. Uh, there's a couple of examples where we've had clients who have bought, um, like four-pack unit blocks, for example, but then have either bought them where they've already been started, but bought them on a, you know, commercial lending, but then refinanced them on residential lending, and there's been some advantageous upsides there. Can you talk to that a little bit as well? Because that's another. That's another way that different valuations or different criteria that could lead to different valuations and different lending situations can be used to people's advantage.
0: Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting one that I, I think we spoke about this a few months ago, actually. So this client we bought, with, when you're buying blocks of units, you can usually get uh, a discount as opposed to buying them individually. So we bought a block of four units for uh, one of our clients in Rockhampton. I think we paid about $680,000, $700,000 uh, for that property. And it was about six to 12 months after we got some valuations done on the individual units. So value, because the property was already strata title, we haven't even done, we haven't strata titled these units. We bought them strata title, which means we could get a favorable lending as well. So we bought these at, I think we bought these at 88% LVR, which if they were on one title, that would be quite difficult to do. Traditionally, it would be about 80% of your lucky. Most of the time it's about 65, 70%. So we got capital uh, advantage by doing that. And then we had the units valued individually after the property was purchased. And the individual units valued up to a, an amount, I think it was $300,000 uh, over uh, what we actually bought the property for. So significant equity uplift. And that property is consistently having the rents increased because it's in an area that has quite tightening vacancy rates as well. So, dual, op- like really good opportunity there, both from a cash flow perspective, but also from a capital perspective. Uh, uh, capital perspective as well I yeah, love that i love that it's
1: such a good hack i remember years ago we did something similar um with, an, with a, uh, another one of our clients where we bought a like a pretty decent sized unit because i think it was a four pack maybe a six pack it was about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars but again they were all strata titled, and when you individually valued them the the total asset value was something like you know north of a million dollars you know there was like a couple hundred grand just sitting on the table depending on how you looked at the exact same property i mean it's fascinating really fascinating
0: yeah, hundred percent. Because the the value they usually derive a higher value when you value the units individually. So it can be a, a really good case for yeah buying blocks of units and potentially short tiling them because you get the cash flow benefit, which is quite helpful in the current environment. You also get a significant uh, capital benefit as yeah, well. Indeed, love that, Jason. This has been really good. Anything else before we wrap it up? That's it. I think we shared enough hacks. Hacks. Lots of hacks. <laughs> lots of hacks. Lots
1: of great intel in there, Jason. As always, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time. Can't wait to have you on again.
0: Thanks, Goose.